0: In the second week in a four week series, uh, as together we, we walk through the Beatitudes, uh, the blessings that Jesus gave as means of introduction to the greatest sermon ever, the Sermon on the Mount. And, and look, I can't promise that tonight's message is going to live up to that standard. Uh, in fact, I can guarantee that it won't. And thank you that no one amen at that one. Uh, but, but look, what we've been trying to see through this series is that all, all too often, we view the Beatitudes in completely the wrong way. Uh, That we view them as this list of individual and separate blessings. Blessings that are conditional upon our circumstances or our disposition or even our personality type. You know, uh, like if you're poor, it's okay because you're still eventually going to receive blessing X Uh, If you're mourning, turn that frown upside down because eventually you're going to get blessing Y. And if you've somehow managed to perfect the art of being perfect, then, uh, you know, God bless your ministry, you're going to get blessing Z. Uh, And that means that in practice, we've managed to boil down the Beatitudes into either a list of consolation prizes for when life kind of sucks, or otherwise we turn it into a, a list of rewards for when we achieve our own holiness that we read the Beatitudes as a list that says, here is how you receive blessing. And that is not how we think Jesus actually intended for the Beatitudes to be read. That the Beatitudes should be read as a singular and self-consistent process, a description of the sort of person the gospel can and will transform you into, and ultimately as a map that points to Jesus. And so last week, Zelvin walked us through the first three Beatitudes. And although he didn't use these exact wording, uh, these exact words, he essentially showed how they map across to the process of our salvation. You know, blessed are you when you're poor in spirit, when you realise you are spiritually bankrupt and that you actually need Jesus. Blessed are you when you mourn, when you realise uh, and you, you, you weep over your sin and your brokenness. Blessed are you when you're meek, when you, when you humbly come before Jesus and just submit control of your life into his hands. Because when you do these things, not as an if then reward, but, but as a, a natural uh, overflow, you will inherit the kingdom. You, you will be comforted and you will inherit the earth and new life in Jesus Christ. In other words, blessed are you when you realize you actually need saving, because only then are you perfectly positioned to receive. it. And so tonight, all I wanna do is I wanna keep walking along this journey of what it looks like when your life gets captured by the gospel. And the next step in that process is our sanctification. And I am super aware of the fact that as soon as I start chucking out big theological words like sanctification, a whole bunch of you switch off. At least that's what I used to do. Um, You know, it's one of those church words, right? And so if you grew up in church, it's got a whole lot of of baggage attached to it. And uh, if you didn't grow up in church, it's like, well, what in the world do I do with this strange word? Uh, In fact, if you ever listen to lectures or uh, read books uh, explaining how to preach, they'll they'll say, don't use words like sanctification. That they're confusing, that they create disconnect between the the audience and, and the preacher, that they just get in the way of the message. But look, I'm going to give you guys a bit of a benefit of the doubt tonight because A, I think you're a pretty switched on crowd so you can handle some big words. And B, actually there's a lot of richness available to us if we start using words like sanctification. So uh, does that sound all right tonight? We can handle that? Awesome. Uh, so, so all the words sanctified really means is to be set apart for specific use or purpose. So uh, I could say that this pencil is sanctified for the purpose of writing, Uh, that that this podium is sanctified for the purpose of of holding up my notes, that it is created for that specific purpose, or or that that timer at the back of the room is sanctified for making me stress out about finishing my sermon on time, Uh, that that it's set apart for a specific purpose or use. And and so when it comes to people then, it's really the, the exact same idea that we are sanctified when we are set apart for specific purpose or use, or specifically the, the one that God actually intended for us when he made us. So we are sanctified when we are living a life according to God's uh, call and purpose for us, or or more specifically, when we are the people that God intended for us to be. And, and so tonight, what I want to do is I want to focus on three really big ways the Holy Spirit changes us, not, not overnight, but over time, into those sort of people. That God changes our desires, He changes our affections, and ultimately He changes our heart. All right, so first and foremost, God changes our desires. Matthew chapter 5, verse 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. All right, so, so the first thing we need to do here is get our heads around this idea of righteousness. Um, And a little bit of of a Bible study tip for you. If you ever come across a word in the Bible that you're not too sure how to process, try and use the Bible as commentary unto itself. So before you go running for a dictionary or commentaries, try and let the Bible explain what it means by a given word. And when it comes to righteousness, there's actually no better place to do this than in the book of Romans. Because over the course of 16 chapters, Paul uses the word righteousness over 35 times. And as you read through Romans, it becomes very clear that righteousness, it doesn't just mean right activity. It doesn't just mean doing the right thing or living a right life. That in the New Testament, righteous predominantly means having a right standing or a right relationship with God. That in, in Romans chapter 3, Paul writes, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in God's sight by works of the law but rather through the law, we become conscious of our sins. In other words, no matter how many times you get it right, no matter how many good things you do or how many right things you do in a row, in and of yourself, you cannot be declared righteous before God. In fact, your position before an almighty and all holy and all perfect God in and of yourself is actually one of judgment. That we aren't sitting here apart, if we're sitting here apart from Jesus, we aren't bad people who need to do better. We're actually sinners who need a saviour. That our position in and of ourselves before God, it's not right. That our standing before God is one of judgment. That no one is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks God. All have turned aside together, all have become worthless, no one does good, no, not even one that we stand before God in and of ourselves in the wrong position. We, we stand before God in judgment. But Paul goes on in verse 21, but, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. So uh, apart from all your right activity, uh, apart from all your good works and trying to earn your own righteousness, a, a way to be in right standing with God has been made available to us. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and all are justified by His grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That because God is holy and because God is perfect, and just. Sin and brokenness in our lives must be paid for. But because God is merciful, he takes that payment upon himself. That through the redemptive work that Jesus completed on the cross, we are put back into right relationship with God. That our position is taken from one of sinners deserving of punishment to children of the Most High King that he who knew no sin became sin, so that in him we might be called the righteousness of God. And blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for that. Blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for the manifest righteousness of Christ in your life. Not your own righteousness. Not not self-righteousness or trying to earn your way into God's position. Blessed are you when you long for God to come into your life And make right your relationship with Him. Blessed are you when you crave it, when you long for it, when you are like a man who is starving and all you can think about is God and having Him in your life. Blessed are you when God changes your desires so that you long for Him and Him alone. And again, we need to look at these Beatitudes as a, uh, as a complete process, right? It's, it's this, in, it's this isn't a single individual blessing. And so what happens is, is you recognize that you need Jesus. You weep over your brokenness, and then eventually you just, you give control of your life into his hands. And after you do that, well, what happens is Jesus gives you the Holy Spirit. And that Holy Spirit comes into your life, and he transforms you from the inside out. He changes your desires, he changes your affections, he he changes the things you want and the things you don't want, such that you become the sort of person who longs for that sort of relationship with God. That part of the sanctification process, part of the person that God intended for you to be, is that you would be someone who longs for a right standing with God. And blessed are you when that happens, for you will be satisfied. And the Greek word there for satisfied, and I promise I won't say it in an Italian accent. Um, And if you weren't here last week, that doesn't make any sense. But um, the the word there is cortazzo, And what it means, it means to feed, to satisfy, or to gorge and supply food in abundance. That as your appetites and desires are changed, they will be satisfied in greater and greater extents through and in God. The best way I could think of explaining it is, um, it's like when you eat on Christmas Day, right? And stick with me, this will make sense, I promise. Um, You've got a massive lunch, right? You've got the turkey, you've got the ham, you've got uh, a chicken, there's sausages, there's bacon, uh, a potato bacon, a whole bunch of salads that no one's going to eat. And you do two, maybe three rounds of that, all for the glory of baby Jesus. And um, uh, after that dessert comes out, and you do another round or two of that, and, and by the end of it, you are just stuffed, right? You've gone and changed into the comfy pants, the, the ones with the really loose elastic. You're, um, you're, you're sitting on the couch and you're just baking in that food coma. And you're like, I have been satisfied. I have eaten to my heart's desire, and I could never eat again. And yet, by four in the afternoon, uh, you're, you're back in the fridge, and you've got a a, a turkey drumstick in one hand and you're you're yelling over the door if anyone else wants a ham sandwich while you're making one, Uh, that that as God changes your desires, as you hunger more and more for God's righteousness, that then God will come into your life and that hunger will be met and satisfied in greater and greater and greater measures, that God provides himself in abundance. And so when we seek after him, When we hunger and thirst for him, we will be satisfied. That blessed are you when you hunger and thirst for the presence of God in your life, for you will receive him. All right, we've made it through one verse and that timer is still ticking down. So you guys need to listen way faster or we're never gonna finish this message. Um, Verse seven, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. And look, again, I am so glad this isn't a conditional blessing, right? Because the way I would read this by myself is, um, blessed are those whose natural inclination is towards showing mercy, for they will receive God's mercy. And if that's how you're supposed to read it, then I'm kind of stuffed. Because uh, if there's a spectrum with sort of mercy on one end and justice on the other, I sort of fall more on on the justice side of things than the mercy. Uh, That I'm a rules guy, I'm a process guy, so if rules are broken, uh, if processes aren't followed, I I think there should be consequences to that, there should be uh, punishment for those sort of actions. And I am really glad God does not treat me that way. Because when I look at my life, when I look at the things I have done and, and the things I am doing, I am just so aware of the fact that I need God's mercy in my life. But see, what is happening here is on this process of sanctification, God changes our desires. He changes the things we want and the things we don't want. And then he begins to change our affections. He changes the way we care for people around us. So I think another way you could read this verse is, blessed are you when the Holy Spirit begins to do a work in you. And you begin to show mercy to people in the same way that God first showed mercy to you. Blessed are you when you start to treat others the way that Jesus first treated you. Because you realize that the fact that you guys are sitting here at all today is an indication of how good God's mercy is. That uh, the moment you first sinned, God would remain perfectly just if a lightning bolt came out of the sky and you were just left as a smudge on the ground. But we're told in Ephesians that God being rich in mercy Because of the great love for which He has loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. That by grace, you have been saved. That God is rich in mercy. And when the Bible uses words like rich, it just means more than enough. That God gives us more than enough mercy. It's not like he gives us just enough mercy to to sort of scrape into heaven, just enough mercy to get over the line. That that God pours out his mercy upon us in abundance. That that God gives you so much mercy that he adopts you into his family. That he changes your identity from sons and daughters of wrath to sons and daughters of the king that He comes along and He gives you His very Spirit indwelling within you, that God pours out His mercy upon mercy upon mercy, that, oh, what love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called sons and daughters of God, that God lavishes His mercy upon us. And and see, what should happen is when you have received that, it should change everything about you. That when you have been run over by the train of God's mercy and grace in your life, you should be fundamentally different. Like, imagine for a second if I was late to the service tonight. So, you know, the, uh, the, the band is playing and they're, they're, everyone's looking around wondering where I am. And uh, as the announcement video is playing, I sort of come sprinting down the aisle and I jump up on the stage just as the video is finishing. And then i do my message, and after the service, Zelvin would come up to me and be like, he'd give me a bit of a talking to. Uh, And then after that, he'd say, okay, Liam, what's your excuse? Why were you late? And imagine if I turned to him and said, Zelvin, the reason I was late is because I was hit by a train. That You know, I was on my way to church, and I was crossing a railroad crossing, and all of a sudden, my car stopped. And as I was sitting there trying to work out why nothing was going, uh, a train came out of nowhere and it smashed the side of my car. And then, you know, I was flung out the windscreen and I was rolling down the road and as I was crawling away from the burning wreck of my car, it exploded and there was fire and it was hot and and I got hit by a train, Zelvin. that's why I was late. You know what Zelvin would would say to that? (laughs) Exactly, He, he would turn to me and he would say, Liam, you're lying because you don't look like the sort of person who's been hit by a train. Liam, if you had been hit by a train, you would look different. Liam, you would be acting differently. Liam, you would walk differently. That you wouldn't have come running down the aisle. You wouldn't have jumped up on the stage. You would have come in limping and bleeding. That there would be something so fundamentally different about you. And no one could argue with it. No one could deny it because it would be so evident in all that you are that you had been hit by a train. Church, that is what it should look like when you have been run over by God's mercy and grace in your life. But you should walk differently. You should talk differently. You should act differently. There should be something so fundamentally different about you that no one could argue with or deny with because you have been so fundamentally changed by God's mercy in your life. So blessed are you when having received God's mercy, you begin to show that same mercy on those around you. Blessed are you when someone cuts you off in traffic. Instead of swearing and hating at them, you respond in love and you pray for them. Blessed are you when that work colleague uh, talks about you behind your back and ruins your reputation and yet you still respond in love to them. Blessed are you, church, when you love your enemies because Christ first loved you. See, someone far smarter than me and I think long dead, I apologize, I couldn't actually find the reference for this quote, but um, they said the greatest indication of whether or not someone is truly a Christian is whether or not they unconsciously respond to their enemies in love. See, church, forgiven people forgive people. If you have received God's mercy in your life, you cannot help but pour it out on those around you. And I'm gonna be super blunt here because it's what Jesus did, so I'm just the messenger, don't shoot me. Uh, but if there are people in your life that you are aware of right now, that you, are, you, you need to forgive, and then you should stop listening to the sermon and you should go and deal with that right now. That, that Jesus said, uh, if you are coming to the altar to present a sacrifice, in other words, you're coming to give your tithes and your offering or you're coming to serve at church and, and you realize that you have an argument against your brother, you, you should go away, you should leave your, your sacrifice at the altar and you should go and resolve that. So if tonight, if you are sitting here and there is someone on your heart that you are thinking of, that you are aware that you you are holding unforgiveness against them, then I give you full permission to stop listening to me speak, to get out your phone and to text them and start to to resolve that conflict. Or or even better, I give you full permission to, to leave the hall, to make that phone call and to start that process of reconciliation. Because church, if there is one thing that Christians should be known for, is that we should be people who forgive people. That while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And if we have been forgiven so much, how can we do anything but forgive those around us? So blessed are you. When heaven being shown mercy, you begin to show mercy to those around you. All right, finally, verse eight. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. And look, again, of the three Beatitudes I've covered tonight, I think this one is the clearest indication that these are not circumstantial and conditional blessings. Uh, Because let's do a little bit of a survey. Who wants to put their hand up tonight and say they are pure in heart? That in and of themselves, they they only ever do the right thing, they only ever think the right thing, they they always respond in love, that they are pure and hot, and they deserve this blessing. No one? No, me neither. Um, And I'm actually glad no one put your hand up, because um, if you did, I feel like you would just be declaring how proud you were of that fact, and the Bible actually says God opposes the proud, so uh, good job, team. Uh, but, But again... What is happening here is, is Jesus is walking us through the sanctifying process. And so first the Spirit changes our desires and then he changes our affections and ultimately he changes our hearts. Now the Bible tells us that, that when we give our lives to Jesus, we, we receive the Holy Spirit and we also receive a new heart. That the core and innermost part of who we are begins to change that Ezekiel says, I will give you a new heart and I will put a new spirit in you. I will remove from you your heart of stone and I will give you a heart of flesh. And Paul writes in Corinthians that, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and behold, the new has come. That the end goal of sanctification is that you would be a new person. Not not that you would lose who you are, not that you would lose your identity, but that you would become fully the person that God intended for you to be when he made you. And as part of that process, he gives you a new heart. He starts to change who you are from the inside out so that you can become a brand new person. And, And so what that means tonight from a really, really practical perspective is you don't have to do the things you used to do because you aren't the person you used to be. That if you are in Christ and He is in you, then the old is gone, the new has come, you are a new creation. You have the power of the Holy Spirit in you and it has freed you from the power of sin in your life. That that those addictions, that those things you used to watch, the things you used to do, the people you used to hang out, you don't have to do those anymore because that's not who you are anymore. God has fundamentally changed who you are from the inside out. And so blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are those who God has given a new heart, for they will see God. Look, church, as a, as a people living in the modern West, we do not understand how amazing and beautiful and just absurd this promise is, that we will see God That there is this relational intimacy and availability with the almighty God of the universe that we have access to. That we can see God's face. Because you do realize that is exactly what you were made for. That each and every one of you sitting in a chair today, if you have breath in your lungs, you were made for a face-to-face relationship with the God who made you that we're told in Genesis before brokenness and sin entered the world, that that Adam and Eve had that sort of relationship with God, that they walked with God in the cool of the day. They had a face-to-face, nose-to-nose, eyeball-to-eyeball relationship with the almighty God of the universe. And yet because sin and brokenness did enter the world, we lost access to that. And you actually have this image of, of Adam and Eve as they're being cast at the garden, that a guarding angel with a fiery sword is put in the way at the entrance to the garden so that we could come, not come back into that presence. And you fast forward a couple thousand years and you know, you've got the Israelites with the tabernacle and eventually the temple, the, the place where God's presence is said to dwell. And what the Israelites have to do is they've got to put uh, the, these layers and these, these um, blockades to prevent people from getting back into that presence that they put in the way veils and layers of curtains and there's the inner court and the outer court, so that no one would accidentally stumble back into God's presence. Because if they did, if a sinner was to come back into the presence of God with a heart that is broken and corrupted, then God's justice would fall upon them and they would be destroyed from the inside out. And so... Throughout the biblical narrative, you have these stories of these people who just long to be back in God's presence. In fact, in the Exodus narrative, um, Moses comes to God and he pleads with God that he could just look upon God's face. And you would think that if anyone in the Old Testament had the right to make that request, it would be Moses, right? I mean, Moses had the whole burning bush experience and then we're told that that he talked to God like he was his friend uh, and and he faithfully served God for 40 years through the wilderness, leading a whole bunch of people who just really didn't want to be led. And so Moses comes to God and is like, look, God, can I just see your face? Can I just come fully into your presence and have this access to you that I know I was made for? And God turns to Moses and says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. Now God goes, no, Moses, that that's not how this works yet, because the lamb has yet to be slain for the covering of the sin. That, that Moses, that the reason there are these veils and these curtains and these guarding angels is because if you were to come into my presence... If you were to come before me as a sinner with a broken heart, then my glory and my divine judgment would come upon you and I would it would destroy you from the inside out. And so what God does is he hides Moses in the crack of the wall and he covers Moses' eyes and he does like a really quick drive-by. And all Moses gets to see is the afterburners of God's glory and presence. That Moses could not see the face of God. He couldn't enter into God's presence because Jesus had yet to come, because Jesus had yet to die for sin. But church, that is not true of us today. See, if you have put your faith in the work and person of Jesus Christ, then you have been given a new heart. You have been given a pure heart, the very heart of Jesus. And so what that means is you are able to come back into God's presence, That all those veils and the guarding angels and the curtains and the courts, they are not required anymore because you have been given a new heart. That you like a child of the King can come running into the throne room and boldly look upon God and come into his presence. That we all with unveiled faces beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. That we now have an unveiled face. And so we can look upon God and be transformed into his likeness. And blessed are the pure in heart. Blessed are you when you have been given a new heart for you will be able to enter into God's presence. And so church, as we close this off and the band can start coming up as we we finish this out, I really just have one question for you. Are you being transformed? Like, when you look at the person you are today and the person you were before you met Jesus, is anything different? Do you look more like Jesus today than you did yesterday? And I don't ask that to bring shame or condemnation into your life because the Bible is very, very clear that there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus But church, I need you to know that God's heart for you is not to stay where you are. That that if the tomb is empty and Jesus has been resurrected from the grave, then you have that very same resurrection power inside of you. That you don't have to do the things you used to do because you aren't the person you used to be. That the old has gone, the new has come, and you are a new creation, that there is change available for you. There is transformation available in Christ Jesus. See, I, I think so often we only preach half the gospel. That we preach a gospel that says, Jesus died for you. He died for your sins, and, and He died for you to get into heaven. And then we, we sort of cut the story off there. Church, that is not the full gospel. That that yes, Jesus died for your salvation. No No one is arguing that, but He also died for your transformation. He died for your sanctification. That you can actually be the person that God intended for you to be. See, it's not like Jesus wiped clean your slate and then left you to fend for yourself. Because if He did that, all that would happen is you would start mucking it up straight away and um, you'd be back in the same problem you started with. No, the scandal and the beauty of the Gospel is that Jesus takes that sled off you with all your sin, with all your brokenness. And then He gives you a new slate. He gives you His slate, He gives you His righteousness, a righteousness foreign to your own, that He gives you His right standing with God. So church, if you are sitting here today and you look at your life and you're like, there is so much in it that isn't of God. That that you realize you hunger and thirst for the things of this world way more than you hunger and thirst for God. That you realize you don't treat people the way that Jesus first treated you that you you look into your heart and like, this is a heart of stone, it is not a heart of flesh, And I'm telling you, there is transformation available for you. But it can only be found in Jesus. See, the only reason we can hunger and thirst for righteousness, the only reason we can long for a right relationship with God is because 2,000 years ago on the cross, Jesus was separated from that perfect relationship with God that He had always known. That the only reason our affections can be changed and we can begin to show mercy on those around us is because on the cross, Jesus received no mercy. That the only reason we could ever say that we can see God, that we can have a relationship with God is because on the cross, Jesus went into utter darkness and lost sight of the Father's face. That Jesus cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That church, there is transformation available for you. That Jesus is offering to come into your life and transform you from the inside out. That he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And so look, if that is you tonight, if you want Jesus to come into your life and transform you from the the inside out, that you long for that sanctifying power in your life, I would just invite you to pray with me and just invite the Holy Spirit to come in and do a work in your life. So Jesus, I thank you. I thank you that you died for our sins, that you died to make us clean, but you also died so that we could be transformed into your likeness. Lord, that your heart is for us to become more and more and more like you. And I just pray that, that you, Lord, you would come into our lives and you would transform us. Lord, that the chains of addiction would be broken. That the need to do the things we've always done we would just be ripped away from us, Lord. That you would just take these hearts of stone and give us a heart of flesh. Lord, that we would be made more and more into your likeness. And look, if you are here tonight and you want that transformative power, bit, but you don't really know Jesus, that then that the first step you need, to, you need to do is you need to go back to those first three Beatitudes. And you need to recognise your need for Him. And you just need to submit control of your life into His hands. And He'll give you the ultimate transformation. That you'll be transformed from death into life in Jesus.